Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey everybody, welcome to the program. This is the Other People Podcast. I'm Brad Listy here in Los Angeles. It is good to be with you. I appreciate you tuning in. Hope all is well wherever you are. Don't forget to subscribe to this show wherever you listen. You can also subscribe on YouTube. Follow the show on social media, TikTok, Instagram, Twitter, and Blue Sky. So my guest today is L. Nash. She has a new novel out available now from the unnamed press. It is called Deliver Me. I don't think that I set out to write like a horror novel. And like, it just feels like there's like this endless spectrum. Like the human experience can really be like anything. It's true, right? Like these are all things we have, like blood and vomit. Like it is, you know, like it is gross, but it's like this fact of life that we have that I guess contrasts with like a lot of beautiful things. I've always written like from the body. It's how we experience the world. It's like that, you know, that tool houses like our little brain. And this tool is how we like input things into the brain. That's how stories begin, right? So I guess just having that sensory detail has always been really important to me. All right, that was Elle Nash. Her new novel is called Deliver Me, available from the unnamed press. Deliver Me is a gripping and unsettling novel set in the Missouri Ozarks. It is narrated by a young woman named Didi, who works in a meatpacking facility and who is obsessed with becoming a mother. The story centers on Didi's life at work and her life at home. Her relationship with her boyfriend, who is a kind of petty criminal, with her mother, who is deeply involved in the Pentecostal church, and with her childhood friend, Sloane, with whom she has a long and complicated history. Deliver Me is a transgressive and at times shocking work of fiction, unflinching in its depictions of the body and some of the more unseemly sides of life. It is also a very deft portrayal of rural poverty and life in rural America. My conversation with El Nash is coming up in just a bit. 
A quick reminder before we get going that I have a weekly email newsletter you can subscribe over at Substack. Just head over there, check it out. If you want to subscribe, you can do that. The newsletter is pretty simple. I let you know about the latest episodes of the show. I also share a list of links to things that I've been reading and finding interesting. So if you would like to get my newsletter, head on over to Substack. Likewise, you can join the Other People Patreon community over at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. You can get merchandise, a t-shirt, a tote bag, coffee mug, a book club subscription. Help keep this show going into the future over at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. Today's episode is brought to you by Harper Books, publisher of the novel Penance by Eliza Clark author of the cult hit Boy Parts. Penance is the official October pick of the Other People Book Club. Nylon Magazine says, quote, this propulsive novel dives into the depraved obsession with true crime, class, and power in a distressing look at young women and the darkness of the human spirit. That is Penance, the new novel from Eliza Clark, available now from Harper Books. Okay, so my guest once again is Elle Nash. Her new novel is called Deliver Me, available from the Unnamed Press. Elle's other books include the novels Gag Reflex and Animals Eat Each Other, as well as a story collection entitled Nudes. Her work has appeared in a variety of publications, including Guernica, The Creative Independent, The Nervous Breakdown, Cosmopolitan, New York Tyrant, and elsewhere. She is a founding editor of Witchcraft Magazine, and she lives in Glasgow, Scotland. Very pleased to welcome Elle Nash back onto this program and to talk with her about her excellent new novel. So here we go. This is my conversation with Elle Nash, and her new novel, One More Time, is called deliver me so when i was living in denver still in 2015 before like you know i had a baby and like all that stuff because i think the last time we talked was like i think i had like a one-year-old or something but when i was living in denver a long time ago this crime happened in in the city i was living in and i could not stop thinking about the story and it wasn't like i saw it and i was like that's a book you know i just was more like how did this happen how did this person like you know they faked a pregnancy for like nine months and no one around her knew you know like how how did her community not see this like how did she fall through these cracks like that kind of thing I got just like really obsessed with this concept and then when I when I was living in Arkansas then in 2018 I was trying to write a different novel after animals eat each other came out And it was just really hard. Like, I just kept getting stuck in the middle and feeling. And I didn't know what I was doing. And then I was like, I'm just going to, like, teach myself how to write a novel. Like, how do people write novels, right? Like, I'm going to read a craft book on it and figure it out. And just write, like, what I was going to call, like, my really basic bitch novel. Because I just didn't feel like I was as sharp as I used to be because I had a newborn. And you know what that's like. You just get so tired. Like, you're not always with it. 
And so I was like, maybe just having like a regular plot will be easy. And so because I could not stop thinking about this story, especially now that I was a mother, I just had this image in my mind. Like I knew like where the ending was. And so I was like, okay, I will just build. Yeah. So wait, this, but the, just so for people listening so that they can follow, the story that you were fixated on was this story about a woman who fakes yeah, a yeah, pregnancy. Yeah, yep, the story about a woman who fakes a pregnancy. And so, like, I, I wanted to know and explore, like, what would compel someone to do that? What kind of circumstances could create this kind of situation? And... The crime in particular, which I don't want to like necessarily give away, you know, for people who want to like haven't read it or anything like that, is a very fringe kind of crime. It's very rare. And so um, I just wanted to like, I don't know, I just wanted to understand it more, you know, because it's, it's so unique. Like it's so unique in that way. Like I was like, what drives people, what drives people to this particular kind of behavior, you know, and can I, can I construct a character that. I, you know, with empathy, and can I take people, like, on that ride with me? You know what I mean? Well, and she narrates the book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I had written it in third person as the first draft, and it didn't feel, like, close enough for me, you know? Um, like, I felt like it was just too distant, and so that's when I was like, I understand, like, because I love first person, narration and so then I, I kind of put this point where I was like I understand now like why I love first person so much is because it really does create it like closes the gap between you know the character and the and the reader in that in a really deep way and that was I knew I was like that's the only way I'm gonna be able to explore this person like this character you know Daisy yeah Daisy Dee 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 yeah it's a good so I like that I think that's a perfect name for her mm-hmm. and this is, and you, you said earlier in terms of this being your attempt to write, what did you call it? A basic bitch novel? Yeah, or, I was like, this is my like, basic just, bitch novel. <laughs> okay. But you're trying to, you know, I, I kind of relate to this. You're trying to teach yourself how to write a novel. Like how do people do this? Like a, a plotted novel with some degree of like page turner-ness to it. Mm-hmm. You said you read a craft book, did you? I did. I read a lot of craft books. <laughs> Which ones were particularly helpful? Were there ones that you really learned something from? Yeah, actually. I found this book at Goodwill for like a dollar called The Plot Whisperer. And like that actually really helped me. It's a really deep breakdown of like the hero's journey, just very basic plot. But it also discusses like the three act structure, which like as a person who doesn't have an MFA, like I never really deeply studied English literature. Like, I have a journalism, like, batch, like bachelor's degree. You know what I mean? But I was never, like, deeply studying, like, story structure. So this really broke it down in a way for me that I was like, oh, like, this is how stories are constructed, you know? And I think, like, as people who love stories or even just anybody who experiences stories, we all have, like, a natural way that, like, we... Everyone knows there's, like, a beginning, middle, and end. You know, that's kind of, like, it, it kind of comes, like, out just because we consume so many stories, but I didn't really understand like how those things were delineated. So that helped me actually think about how I'm going to construct a plot and how I'm going to get through the middle because the novel I abandoned, I would just, I was just writing it like seat in my pants. Like I, like I had done with like all my short stories and like with my first novel. 
but I kept getting stuck, you know, directly in the middle. It just started losing momentum and I didn't know where to go. And so learning how to actually figure out what a plot is and, you know, how to set like rising action and all these things, it really helped me like just create structure in a way that I hadn't done before. And then the other book that I read was hilariously 90 day novel because, you know, Otessa Moshvik talked about it when writing Eileen. And I was like, okay, I'm going to kind of see what this is about. And it was some good advice, but it, like, I think the way that the book was designed didn't work for me, but I liked the concept of trying to write a novel like in three months, you know, like I was like, I think that's a challenge that can be undertaken. So those two together, I spent like two weeks plotting and then I spent nine weeks just completing the first draft. And so I was like, okay, I'm really sold on this process. Like, you know, it can be bad, like letting it be bad, the first drop and like all that kind of stuff. Um, it helped me push me through it. So it, it, it did help. But hilariously, like now that I'm working on new projects, I still feel like I'm a beginner. It still, it still feels like just as hard like every time you start a new project, you know? It's a blank slate. Yeah, every time. And in terms of the two-week plotting process, or that was like what, drawing up an outline? Yeah, like I got this big thing of butcher paper and I taped it to my kitchen wall and then I got like a marker and I just like delineated like all these these major like points, right? And then I got like a bunch of sticky notes and I was like, okay, here's like the like the the action, right? Like here are like the things that are happening. And then I delineated like the emotional plot lines, you know, like what is Daisy experiencing in this moment from this moment to that moment, you know? So I kind of went through that. And so those two things were on this big, like thing, like on my kitchen wall that I taped up. And so, um, when, whenever I had like free moments, you know, like, cause I, um, I was staying home watching my daughter. She was around a year, maybe a year and a half. And so anytime I had like a free moment or if she was napping, I would just like sit at my kitchen table and I'd look at my like plot, like, you know, and then I would just like hammer out what I could do. Like I just try to do that as much as I could every day. And it was so helpful because if there were days where I was just like, I don't even know like what I'm going to do like today, like what am I going to write about? I have no idea how to like get through this scene. I would just in my mind just go like, just go from like A to B. Like you don't have to make it pretty, just like. You know, even just write, like, the way that the characters are getting from, like, these these points, you know? Because I could see on my plot, like, where I wanted to go. I, I should say, too, I should say, too, that plotting out this particular novel on butcher paper feels <laughs> apropos. <laughs> it actually does. I did not consider that. No, it's true. <laughs> it was a fun process, though. I never, I like having this that big visual representation. You know, like I kind of like I really want to do that again with my next projects. I just um, like I haven't been as organized, I think, this time. But it's nice because because, you know, you just look at it. You're looking at it like every day. Like you go if you go into your kitchen, you're like, there it is. You're thinking about it. Even if you're not necessarily like working on it, you can still kind of like see it and be reminded like of what you're trying to complete. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's so. like something that I have told myself that I should do, but I have never done. Yeah, I have like the fantasy of like just co like covering the wall like a conspiracy theorist with like paper and sticky notes and yeah, totally. <laughs> photos. But, you know, I'm sure it would be helpful. Maybe I will when I get around to writing my plotted novel, which I think is going to be not the next book, but the book after. 
Yeah, yeah. It's, I don't know, I really like it. I, too, like, when I was like, okay, I'm ready for my next book project, I went out to a craft store and bought, like, a bunch of string, because I was like, yeah, I'm gonna make it, like, conspiracy theorist looking. It's gonna be, like, you know, cool. But I haven't done, I haven't done it yet, either. So. Yeah. What is it? What's, what's holding us back? <laughs> it's like, maybe that makes it real or something. I know. I don't know. Yeah. Do you find that you procrastinate on things or is that just like a. Yeah. I mean, yeah. every, I think, you know, not everybody, there are some psychos out there, but like, <laughs> it, it, I think it's like, I think it's easier to procrastinate when you don't have a, a firm grip on what you're doing. It's, mm -hmm. it's, it's easier to get down to business when you know where you're going, I think. Yeah. No, that's so true. it's just, it's like working in the unknown can be a little bit, you know, uh, unpleasant and something that you would prefer to avoid. That's because you have to like mark out the path yourself. Like you have to make a lot of decisions. And I think if you're like, maybe it's like, maybe like for parents or people who have like really high pressure jobs like things like that, you have to make so many decisions every day. So then when you're like, I have to make decisions for myself for a book that I want to write for me, like that's right. too hard. That's too much. <laughs> you know, that's it's too a bridge much. too far. Yeah. yeah. So this is a book. This is a story about Daisy or Dee Dee. And she is a woman in her thirties who is in a relationship with a man named David, who's kind of like a low level criminal. Mm -hmm. She calls him daddy. Mm -hmm. And He's super into exotic bugs. He's not the greatest guy in the world. I want to say there was a review that I read of the book when I was prepping that referred to daddy as like a disturbingly recognizable form of asshole or something. Like he's a kind of guy that is depressingly common mm. in terms of his treatment of DD. <laughs> his sort of self-absorption and lack of sensitivity. But they are in a relationship together and she just desperately wants to have a baby and wants to be a mom. And something that you have said about not just this book, but I think your body of work is one thing that I'm always exploring, a theme that I'm constantly coming back to is desire or just where the origin of suffering comes from. Mm -hmm. This place of the gap between what you want and what you have and how that combined with feelings of alienation and society affects people. That really sums it up for me. This is like a book about a deep desire and maybe multiple kinds of deep desire. And you're exploring in particular with Dee Dee what that is and where it comes from, right? Yeah, 100%. 100%. I just always come back to that as a theme. I don't know. I don't know why. You know what I mean? Like, I think that for a while, I was like, not aware of the themes that I was always circling back to. But obviously, now that like, there is like, there's a kind of a body of work behind me. I'm like, Oh, I am like, I think I'm, I am always consistently somehow meditating on this process in some way. I don't know why. Maybe it's just because, like, I feel, I think about, you know, suffering as a concept a lot, right? And this idea of, like, whether or not, sometimes it's, like, the like the whole, like, artist trope where it's, like, if I give up my suffering, will I lose my creative capacity? You know, like, that kind of idea. Or sometimes it's just, like, 
because suffering is inevitable, like it is always inevitable. Even if you're like completely healed as a person, like everybody still is going to come across this, this feeling, you know what I mean? Cause like, like happiness, um, isn't like a permanent state or anything like that. You know what I mean? And I think just because like it, like, because that you, like, I feel everything. I'm super sensitive to everything all the time. So when I feel those things, I'm like, this is so hard. And my mind sometimes thinks like, this is going to last forever. Um, I am consistently just trying to understand like the nature of it. Like I do, you know, like I met, you know, I think we've talked about this before. Like I meditate and I, I read a lot of like, or listen to a lot of like Buddhist lectures more so particularly like when I'm having a harder time, <laughs> You know, and so by whom? Who are who are some of your favorites? I the first place I started was through Venerable Guan Chang, and like there's a four part series on dependent origination, the origin of suffering that is on YouTube that just transformed my life. Like I always go back to it just to revisit the basics. You know, say the name again. Guan Chang. So it's G U A N C H E N G. Yeah. And the dependent origination and the origin of suffering. So the interconnectedness of things and yeah. the origin of suffering. Yeah. And then I couldn't, it's like I couldn't name any other particular ones. But like, you know, in college I read a lot of, what's your name? Pima Chodron. And like, I think Chuang Thurman Rinpoche. Like a lot of like the Zen stuff I've explored. And then sometimes I'll just read like books by people I can't remember on things like, you know, the Tibetan Chod rituals and like getting like really, really deep into like the, like those kinds of like Buddhist mysticism and stuff like that too, because that helps provide some insight to me about how like, like Buddhist thought is received in the West, like versus the East and trying to understand like, cause it's different, you know, it's different. Like, and sometimes you see people kind of interpret things in a way that maybe doesn't like work or seem correct like there's ideas between like do we obliterate the ego or are we obliterating like ego clinging like those little differences just can help you it helps me like understand um and just deepen like what it is i'm trying to do right like if i'm like in a meditation or if i'm trying to like understand the origin of my suffering and then like sit with it or something do you know what i mean yeah i do and i think it's interesting that this is the like undergirding yeah, of yeah. This, no this novel, this story, which has nothing explicitly to do with Buddhist psychology. I don't think yeah. it's ever mentioned <laughs> in the story. No. And yeah. it is a book about the idealization of motherhood, particularly mm -hmm. in the Didi character. She is a woman, as we've said, who desperately wants to be a mom and who has this idealized vision of what motherhood is and will be for her. Not only at the level of love and nurturing and caring and deep connection, but also in terms of it being a way out of the workforce, which, you know, once you become a parent, you realize is sort of laughable. It's, parenthood is not a way out of work. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man, I know. I actually like, I laugh at myself thinking about that, like when I was younger, or like when I do see people say, like, I want to be like, prairie core and like live in the like live in the woods and just have like babies and just do that and I'm like to escape my corporate job you know and I'm kind of like it's still being a parent is, is actually like 24 7 labor in a way 
It's a labor yeah. of love. Like, it's deeply satisfying, you know. But it is just, like, there's never there's never really an off day. Right. Like you can't really... And I understand. But I understand. I mean, yeah. I've never heard Prairie Corps. But I understand this idea of wanting to escape the yeah. rat race and live closer to nature. I have a lot of those <laughs> little fantasies, like, you know, in my head. Mm-hmm. I, I know it would not be what I imagine it to be. <laughs> like, the realities. The realities. <laughs> always like less sexy than the way that you envision it but mm-hmm. i get that and i think that dd is somebody who is like so many of us working a job that is bad for her spirit and she knows it mm-hmm. you know so much of work life is corrosive and toxic and misery making mm-hmm. and this book draws that beautifully and i should say too for people listening in particular who have not had a chance to read that deliver me is a novel that exists in a world and features characters that are not seen often enough in fiction this is a book that takes place in rural missouri correct mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and features characters who are poor and like they're not college educated i don't believe and super religious these are not the kinds of characters and the kinds of settings that you see often enough in contemporary literary fiction and Didi works in a meatpacking facility that i took to be the tyson because she works in a chicken on the chicken line essentially butchering chickens and preparing chicken meat for sale correct yeah Mm -hmm. so talk a little bit about that i know that you had some you have some experience you lived in the woods for a time in northwest arkansas not far from the tyson meatpacking plant but Mm -hmm. i'm just curious to know how you got there and what it took to write those particular sections of the novel inside the meatpacking facility with what i took to be really terrific accuracy and a real sense of verisimilitude, you know, a real gritty reality that those scenes have to them. Mm-hmm. And we will be right back. And now, back to the program. So when I, I used to live in Colorado Springs, like when I was a teenager, and I read this book called Fast Food Nation by Eric Schlosser. And sure. That was like the first time my eyes were kind of opened to what that level of industrial agriculture does to like animals in general and people, you know, that um, meatpacking overall is one of the most dangerous jobs in the United States. And the companies are constantly lobbying against OSHA standards to increase their profits. And so for a long time, like, you know, just as a like crusading like youth or whatever, I've just always disliked that that industry. And I've thought about how it's difficult for people to try to live in harmony with their ideals, like cruelty free meat, for example, or like something that reduces harm as much as possible, but also having to survive. Like not everybody has the pro- the privilege to like grow their own food or, you know, like have their own livestock or even go purchase like ethically raised you know meat or something you know or something like that or even being a vegetarian like that's not always ideal for people who have like health issues for you know 
or who um, have a lot of mouths to feed or something like that. So it's like this balance that becomes very difficult between very affordable food and very like unsafe food. Unsafe meaning it's bad for both the animals and the people who work in the industry. So I guess I've always been interested in it in that way. And then when I did move to Arkansas, yeah, I lived in the woods for a while. I saw how people just would keep like their own chickens and stuff. Like if you would go walking around on these different plots of land, um, there would be, I mean, there would be a lot of people who just, I mean, they live very simply, like you live in like your single or double wide and you have your yard, you have like an acre or two, you know, you have like your little chicken coop, you know, um, which seemed, you know, it's like those kinds of things like seem ideal. Like, and it was, it was, um, nice to see in contrast with Tyson headquarters being right there in, I think the headquarters is in Fayetteville, Arkansas, which is like Northwest Arkansas and it kind of touches Missouri and Oklahoma. So that whole area kind of feels, um, like a little bit similar. And yeah, I just did a ton of research. Like we moved into a house eventually and I had a backyard for the first time. And so then I was like, I want chickens. <laughs> you know, I was like, I want to like try my hand at this finally. And it was wonderful. Like just as like animals and like pets, like keeping animals they're they all have like their own little personalities. Like it was nice to feel like connected to something that, you know, like, so with like we would get eggs every morning, like that was nice. Like you're taking care of them, and then they kind of give to you. It's like this interesting symbiotic relationship. We never like ate the chickens, you know, but I know people could do that. And so in some ways, like that makes you feel more responsible, like for the food that you're eating. So I I don't know. That's just where a lot of that was born out of is like that passion for understanding that cycle and like maybe making people more aware of that. And for the research, I just. I don't, I don't know. I just like did a, like a lot of um, late night, like deep dives online a lot, trying to understand the industry practices, trying to find like believe, like videos, not like, you know, PETA propaganda videos, even though I know some of those probably have legitimacy, but I just was looking for like stuff that's like really even killed that just feels like normal, you know, I'm just trying to find as much as I could about that. And then from there, just trying to put myself like in that position. Like I've never worked as a butcher, but I've worked in like food service, um, like food preparation and stuff like that. So there's some of that kind of goes, you know, the experience is a little bit transferable. And then um, just trying to take like feelings and experiences from like, yeah, being in Arkansas, you know, being out in Arkansas. Like we had friends who, um, when we lived there, would go hunt wild hogs. So I could be there for the whole process of like watching this animal become like food for like an entire group of people, you know, so like those kinds of things. Which which factor into the novel? There are really graphic and accurate seeming, because I've never done this, descriptions of butchery, like animals being butchered. Didi's father was a hunter and would kill animals for food and kind of show her how he was butchering them. And those are those scenes are depicted with what felt to me like a lot of accuracy and a sense of reality. So it was the wild hogs in Arkansas that you saw your friends butcher that informed that? Oh yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. And then like, obviously like anything that I don't know, I'm like researching to like fill in like, you know, my own knowledge gaps and that kind of thing. But yeah, yeah. And it's a really like, like 
as a, as a former vegetarian who was vegetarian for the reasons of like reducing that kind of harm, like with industrial agriculture, it was really powerful to be able to see something that had lived wild, you know, didn't have to like live in a cage or, you know what I mean? Like that kind of thing. And then kind of be able to like honor that this, this living thing gives its energy so that you can have your energy and then you can give your energy out back into the world. Like you can, it, when you see like that whole process, it was really grounding in a way. And it like made me respect what it is and how we consume things so much more. So that's, that was like, you know, a lot of that like kind of plays into representing the chicken factory in the novel because I mean, it's chicken, especially because one, it's like the, like the dirtiest meat in the United States, something like, 25 to 30% of all chicken in the United States um, for sure has salmonella on it, right? Like, it's just not, like, a very, like, um, safe, like, raw meat. But then when you see it in the supermarket, it's, like, beige. Like, it's not even, like, the color of what you think of, like, meat to be, right? Like, beef is, like, red, and that makes us think about, like, blood in a way, right? Or you cook steak rare or whatever. But chicken is, like, bloodless. It's, like, beige. It's, like, wrapped in plastic, you know, it's very, um, it, it's very, it keeps you, it can keep you, like, disconnected from, like, what it came from, you know, like, what happened to that animal, like, before you ate it, and so it's easy to just not think about, like, what, what it's gone through to, like, get to you in a way, you know what I mean? Sure, and yeah. you were a vegetarian, but then you, you say you're no longer a vegetarian, like, what, what happened, like, what was the process of starting to eat meat again? I just had, I started getting like a lot of health problems, not from being vegetarian, but just like, like an, I got an endocrine disorder and it just made it really hard for me to eat a lot of starchy foods, which is a lot of like vegetarian stuff. And this was like back in the day before there's like so many more options now, like there's so many more meat free options now. So I was just like, I have to start like kind of switching things up again because I just, you know, I can't just eat like tofu forever. Like I have to eat like other like things that like felt feeling filling for me but living in the UK has actually been really nice because there's like a there's like a ton of vegan options everywhere because I think because there's like a very large like Hindu population they don't eat I don't think they eat beef and stuff so there's always vegan and dairy-free options and stuff on like every single menu and so I do find myself like drifting more towards like meat free more easily, you know, just not a hundred percent of the time, but yeah. 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 I get that. It's like, it's hard to be a hundred percent. Yeah. People like people who are like vegan, like don't wear leather, don't eat any animal products, no milk in the food. I mean, it's, that's, you have to really work, I think, mm -hmm. to maintain that and to bat a thousand. Mm -hmm. And I want to ask you too, before we get too far along, about this time you spent in Arkansas, we mentioned earlier this desire to sort of live off the grid and get out of the rat race. It sounds, you actually did that. Like you were living in a cabin without utilities. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't even think there was a toilet, right? Like there was no, like yeah. plumbing. Yeah, there's no plumbing. It was just like a, it was like a sawdust latrine, which was like, you know, that that's, it is, it's like living, living off grid, for a while was really nice because you feel so accomplished at the end of the day, you know, like your chores or what have you, like if you have to chop wood or like clear out weeds of wherever you are or go get like water. But when like it's your turn to like clean, 
like the latrine out and go like find the place to like dump the stuff you're just like I don't want to do this <laughs> you know but you have to no one else is going to do it you know you have to do it it's all teamwork so so who and you were there with your child no I was there I was there with my partner and my friends my friends had owned this cabin they were building and I'd met them I was working at Whole Foods in the grocery department and there was this girl who worked there. She was like at the cookie bar because we were working in a bakery. And she looked so cool. I was like, I'm going to be friends with that girl. And then we started hanging out. And she was like, she was like, me and my husband are moving back to Arkansas in like six weeks. And she was like, if you guys just want, like, she was like, if you guys want to come out and stay, like, you can stay with us for a while. Just help us, you know, like, help us, like, build up our cabin or whatever. And so me and my partner were just like, okay, let's do it. You know, we just wanted a change. Like we wanted something different. So, where we were so wait, in- the, the, the Whole Foods was in Colorado? Yeah, it was in Colorado. Okay. Yeah. And so then you moved to Arkansas moved to the to Ozarks. Yeah. And it was fun. Like I learned how to insulate a roof, how to get clean water, how to make sure you don't like burn down your cabin when you have a wood stove, like all of that, you know, like it was, I don't know like living in the absolute like dark like trying to like go down a path when everything's like super dark and all the trees you know all the trees are there which i don't i don't like the deep dark it's scary but yeah how long were you there uh we were there for just a couple of months and then and then i did and then i got pregnant and i was like we can't live in a cabin with a baby like we have to find we have to like go get we have to go to a town and get jobs and <laughs> like get an apartment. You know what I mean? So that was when we were like, all right, let's make a couple of changes. Where did you go from there? To Fayetteville, uh, which is in, yeah, Northwest Arkansas. So it's only like... It's a univer- university town. Yeah, there's a university there. Like we, we, well, our first apartment was in Bentonville, which is like... 30 40 minute drive from where we were staying in the woods and that's like the headquarters of the headquarters of walmart is there and i just got a job at starbucks because they give you health insurance even if you work part-time which is nice and then we just like built up like we did you know we just like tried to figure out what we're gonna do and then we moved to fayetteville like a year after and that's when we like we got a house we had a backyard and all that so, which was the baby was born. The baby was born. Yeah. All right. Well, I'm just curious because, like mm-hmm. anybody, you know, I've had these fantasies. Like, I'm just gonna go live somewhere in the sticks. Yeah. Make it simple, but it's never as simple as you think it's gonna be. Like, it's, I know. it's there are complexities to simplicity somehow. Like, it's just inescapable. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, and some people though, some people really do take to it. Like, they're where. The small, like the small, the small like town where we were living, like in the woods. There were other people that kind of lived like in the hills. Um, and there was one family that they like built their A-frame because um, it's very simple, you know, relatively simple if you have the DIY skills and the motivation to like build an A-frame. And they were a family of two, like they had two children, you know, and they really did just they like really committed to that lifestyle and like lived off grid for like a long, you know, they live off grid. I'm sure they probably still do for a long time. I met people who they had like built an earth ship, you know, it's like a, like that, like the kind of house that's built from a hundred percent recycled materials, you know, and they had like 40 acres, like some people really, you can just like commit to it. But I think it does take that probably a lot of patience with yourself, 
because all everything has to be DIY, right? And you're home, and you're probably homeschooling your kids, and yeah. I mean, I don't even know if you're if you're that far out into the boonies. Yeah, yeah, no, you're homeschooling. Yeah, you're homeschooling your kids, definitely. So that's a lot of work. I it mean, is a lot parent, of work. Parent, parenthood's <laughs> enough work. work. I know people who homeschool. I'm like, damn, that's just you're really taking it on in that case. But yeah, but community is really is a lot stronger out there. I felt than like if you're like kind of just like living, you know, like alone as a parent in a city. Like for me, like I don't, you know, I've never lived in a place where like besides COVID, I've never had my parents around like with caring for my daughter or anything like that. And I'm and I'm an only child, so like when I was when I was out in the woods, people really seem to band together. They're always visiting each other. There's always help. They're always helping each other, trading supplies if they like need it. Childcare is very communal. I think that was like one of the best parts was um, getting to see and experience like so many mo- like mothers before I had my own child, like how they handled their kids, how they worked together to take care of each other's kids. You know what I mean? Like that was really, like that is really wonderful. So That's lovely. Yeah. Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. So Deliver Me is also a book that is often described as a novel concerned with body horror. Uh, What is, it portrays, one of the reviews, it portrays a quote, disgusting yet beautiful world. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, I guess that's, I guess that's right. I mean, because there is a lot of beauty in the landscape, you know, in the ways that you depicted in this novel, I think it kind of speaks to what we were just discussing, you know, this time that you spent in the, in the Ozarks, it's very beautiful there. And it's also kind of relentlessly gross Mm -hmm. in its depictions of, for example, food, animals, both dead and alive, the bugs, just like cigarette smoking, vomit, blood, uh, kind of, I don't know how to describe it. I guess gross sex by most people's standards, <laughs> you know, uh-huh. I mean, you know, no, no judgment, no judgment, There's, but like, you know, mm-hmm. there is, uh, there, you know, this is also a novel that is interested in weird kink. Mm-hmm. Uh, I hope it's not too much to share that the protagonist Dee Dee and her boyfriend, daddy, have sex that involves exotic bugs. Mm-hmm. Like that's, he's into that, like in, involving 
like creepy crawly big giant like hairy insects and like praying manti i mean all this kind of stuff i'm just like for most people that is more than a bridge too far mm-hmm. so can you just talk a little bit about that part of it the the body horror the the grossness the bugs mm-hmm. like where does all of that come from well i think a big part of it is that like the human experience encompasses so much and this is what i love about like horror in general. I don't think that I set out to write like a horror novel, but I, I, I adore horror like movies as like a genre, right? Because a lot of times what they show me is that when it's the stuff that's like that gritty realism stuff is that like on one end of like the human experience spectrum, you have this like indescribable ecstasy that people can experience, right? And then on the other end, there's like this indescribable horror and like it just feels like there's like this endless spectrum like the human experience can really be like anything it's true right like these are all things we have like blood and vomit like it is you know like it is gross but it's like this fact of life that we have that i guess contrasts with like a lot of beautiful things you know like looking at your baby and then like smiling at you like that's like this indescribable feeling of ecstasy right like i can see you smiling right now thinking about it right you're like it feels so good but then there's like so much there's also still so much horror in the world and so i guess that's maybe where and why like i just feel like the visceral details of things are so important you know i've always written like from the body it's how we experience the world it's like that, you know, that tool houses like our little brain. And this tool is how we like input things into the brain. That's how stories begin, right? So I guess just having that sensory detail has always been really important to me. It's almost like, I don't know, I guess sometimes I'm just like, how, I'm like, how vivid can I make a thing? You know, can I bring someone into this fictive dream and actually put in their mind, like what's in my mind, you know? So is it, I hope it's not strange to say that I often laughed <laughs> as I was reading this book when it came to the body horror stuff and how gross it could be oh, interesting. just because I don't see this very often. I mean, it's kind of like that, like nervous laughter where you're like, Oh, you know, <laughs> like, but I don't see this very often. And I, I think too, I was admiring the creative courage that you have in being willing to kind of go there. Like, you, you permit yourself to go there in ways that maybe a lesser writer wouldn't, you know, they'd hold back or say to themselves, like, this is too much. Mm-hmm. And I read somewhere that when you took this book out on submission for publication, that a lot of the publishers who, the major publishers who looked at it, declined to publish it on the grounds that it was too violent and too gross and intense. Is that correct? Yeah, I think to a degree. I had feedback that was like, maybe not that direct, but it was like, one, I really actually really loved reading these rejections because it made me feel like good. They were actually nice. One was like, I've never had a book crawl under my skin like this, you know, in a really long time. But like, you know, we're just going to have to pass because it's like not right for like the imprint or whatever. Or one was like, Right, they were like, I could do without like the last like forty pages, which is like the like the ending. And for me, I'm like that. And the ending for me is like that's where I started. That's where I was always driving to. 
So I think it was just on the basis of that. And, like, it had some editorial feedback, too, about, like, some scenes that should maybe be cut or, like, you know, also, like, pulled, pulled back in that way. But they did feel, for me, like, integral to the, the character itself. So... I don't, I don't get the sense in this novel that you pulled back all that much. In fact, I think like you sort of like double down. I see this every once in a while, like not, I mean, I don't know, every book is unique, but there are cer- certain novels that I read where I'm like, wow, this is an author who, whenever it came to a moment where it's like, should I pull back or double down? They always double down. That's sort of how I felt in reading this is that you are kind of, what, like pushing the needle, you know, trying to sort of take the reader into extreme places and to make the reader examine things that might be uncomfortable for them mm-hmm. to examine. Yeah. Like you want to you wanna look at this stuff. You yeah. want to sort of like zero in on it instead of kind of brushing past it. Yeah, I think so. Um, because I think a big, another motivation for me not that I was like this is what I want readers to get from it but why I was exploring it was just trying to understand like culturally the psychology of like killing right like in terms of her working at the chicken factory and like what we consume and like maybe the kinds of things people will like put up within their relationships or how people like you know in society like view view death right like there's a lot of obsession with true crime like like, David in the book is constantly talking about, like, all these facts about death and, like, you know, like, the people who da- might... David being David being daddy, daddy. her, yeah, uh, Dee yeah, Dee's yeah. boyfriend. The boyfriend, yeah, yeah. Like, watching a lot of, right, like, true, true crime documentaries or serial killer document- documentaries or that kind of thing. Like, there's all these different ways that, like, killing is kind of examined in the book. I guess based just on my own observations of society as well. So I think that was part of why, too... You know, yeah, I don't know. I'm like, why did I double down? I don't know. I just wanted to. <laughs> it just seems necessary. Yeah. It seemed like it just seemed important for like to explore that, like for the character itself. So. And when it comes to the bugs, you are a person I read who used to be spider phobic. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And here you are now writing a novel where they're, you know, like sex scenes happening involving insects. <laughs> mm-hmm. Like how did you how did you navigate that? I guess you're no longer spider phobic. You got over that. I mean, you would almost have to if you lived out in a cabin in the Ozarks, but how did it go away? So, my spider phobia went away when I started like seeing like wolf, I think they're called wolf spiders everywhere. It's just like your garden variety like spider. They just like to crawl around because they they hunt. They don't necessarily stay in webs. And, like, I used to be the person that would kill them, but then I started feeling kind of bad about that. This was, like, even probably around the time that I quit being a vegetarian, I had this, like, idea in my mind where I was, like, I kind of think all life exists on, like, the same, like, level. Like, I don't think we should be, like, putting hierarchies to whether or not, like, a chicken is worth more than a spider or you know what I mean, or like a like a flower, like a tree, or something like that, because it is kind of all life, like it's all symbiotic. And so, what about wait, 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 wait? What about mosquitoes? This is <laughs> I have the same thought. I, I will take a bug out of my house 
if I see a spider in my house, I will try to like get it into a cup or something and take it outside. But yeah. mosquitoes. Well, I mean, if it's like I am, biting you, I guess yeah, like that makes sense. Or like, like if something's like you know venomous, it's gonna like hurt your kid. Like yeah, like it makes you know that makes sense. But like yeah, I just um. I remember talking to my friend Julia Escoria about about spiders and like seeing them and like being really afraid of them. Like I used to not even want to go like you know go near them or anything like that. And she said something to me that was like, I I can't remember the exact phrasing of it, but basically like sometimes when you start seeing them a lot, what's happening is there's something like that your shadow is like trying to integrate, right? Or like it's trying to tell, it's trying to like alight you. Like there's something that's going on that you're feeling anxious about or that you need to like accept in yourself. And I just started thinking about that a lot. Um, I do believe like we know we have, we do pattern recognition for a reason. Like maybe not like God is sending you an omen, but more like I am noticing this pattern and this, there's a reason I'm noticing that. But like, what is that reason? Like, can I pick up on that? Does that mean I think that I need to be examining something in myself? You know, because I was like even having dreams about spiders and stuff. I wrote like a short story about it. And once she told me that, yeah, I don't know. I think it just actually put me at ease. Like I was like, okay, so maybe they're, maybe they are here for like a reason. Like I'm just supposed to be thinking about something in particular. And I stopped being so anxious about it. I kind of like began to sit with like that discomfort. And now even like if I see spiders, I don't even like move them. I just kind of let them do their thing like they'll just let them stay where they are you know like i don't know there's not yeah. really any harm or anything yeah, they're like not that. gonna bother you yeah my wife is ter. my wife hates she had a bad experience with spiders as a child and uh is just wants nothing to do with them and i'm like just leave them alone they're not gonna bother you there's not like a spiders don't like attack people yeah uh, unless you like you know unless you step on them or something or put your hand in a spider web or something maybe you might get bit but I don't know, but yeah. I uh, I find it interesting that Julia Descoria, a past guest on this program, yeah. essentially cured you of your spider phobia. <laughs> she did. I know. I, I think <laughs> about it a lot. But what's interesting, though, is that like even though I'm like, okay, I can let them do their thing, you still have like this visceral reaction to like if you've seen like those videos where someone will like touch like this thing that just looks like a glob and then it turns into a bunch of tiny little spiders. Like there's this thing in you that's just like, that's bad. You know, like you feel like icky. <laughs> and so I'm fascinated by that feeling because humans have this innate feeling about insects. And sometimes I think it's because they're so far away from the human form. Like we love jumping spiders because they have like eyes in the front of their head and they're kind of fluffy and they look a little bit like cats or puppies maybe. But like other types of bugs are like, I mean, they look horrifying, especially when they're, like, in these swarming kind of groups. It's, like, an, an innate thing. And so I'm fascinated by that relationship between, like, human psychology and bugs. I think that was one reason why I thought putting that storyline in there would be so interesting. Because it's, like, this deepest juxtaposition between, like, intimacy and closeness. And then, like, the most terrifying alien shit, you know, that you can think of. You know what I mean? Yeah. 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 And in terms of being, in terms of being, I mean, we have discussed the spider phobia and it's, uh, and it's end, but in terms of things that gross you out, like, I think there are two ways of reading a novel like this. You can read it and think to yourself, well, the author clearly has like a super high tolerance for gross stuff. 
and for like body stuff and all of it. Or I guess the other angle to take is that this is an author who is like super grossed out by this stuff and is kind of working it out on the page. Like, Mm -hmm. where do you fall? Are you somebody who's like really kind of like immune to being grossed out by body stuff? Or are you somebody who recoils? Well, I'm a mom, so I feel like I have a super high tolerance, you know, where like after a while, like human stuff kind of stops like, you know, like bothering you. I also worked in like a blood lab for a while. So like, like blood, like all that stuff doesn't, it doesn't bother me. You see people, you know, like if you see patients like pass out and you see people go through things, right? Like it's can be scary, but once you kind of see it and you kind of know what to do, it stops becoming like so like freaky in a way. And so I guess maybe to that end, like I do have a pretty high tolerance. There's not a lot like watching horror stuff or like what have you. There's not too much that makes me feel like grossed out or like icky about things though i still not like unse- not unsettled do you like do you can you can watch like a horror movie and just like go to bed no problem no i do feel well i mean some things do really unsettle me like some things do unsettle me but it's like always usually psychological like i just watched this found footage uh, movie called the outwaters and it's like it's i mean it's like a small budget film but it was it really was like that was so psychologically unsettling and well done like it was it really did get me but like you're right what's it about it's just about like a bunch of friends that go out to the desert to film like a music video and then they kind of come across this like i would almost say like a kind of an undefinable like cosmic threat and it's um like it almost feels reminiscent of Blair Witch where you're like what is it you know what I mean you have to kind of watch it to like see you know but it was it was done really well in this way that really got me and so like those things can be unsettling or like the new Evil Dead like there's scenes in it where I'm like I cannot actually watch this like I have to like like it seems so like that like de- the depiction of like mimicking gore is too like it, it is too hard to like see those kinds of things but it doesn't like it doesn't unsettle me in the sense that like I feel like unsafe in my like in my life or something. I don't know. Whereas like seeing like a giant blob of like daddy long legs that someone pokes and then they turn into like ten thousand little tiny crawling spiders, that makes me feel like weird as shit. Like I don't know why. I'm just like I don't wanna be anywhere like near that. <laughs> it's so weird. Even like without even like without being afraid of spiders. It's more just like this the legs and like it's the numbers yeah it's the numbers yeah yeah it just makes me feel like weird so like that you know so so there's that but i don't know i i read you know and i read a lot you know read like dennis cooper and stuff like that so i don't yeah it doesn't like bother me i'm more just like in art it's really interesting to like see those kinds of depictions like where it takes you you know so along these same lines but i think connected to something else entirely are the depictions of food in this novel, which I was often like grossed out by. And it also made me aware of privilege when it comes to food and food choice and how lack of resources, lack of access to things like farmer's markets or whole foods or whatever it is, is something that uh, most people on earth live with 
but a lot of people in the United States don't, you know, they live with this stuff. And I mm-hmm. found, and I also, I think, you know, it also kind of made me think to my childhood in the Midwest growing up where people's attention to food is totally different than it is, say, in Los Angeles, where I've spent my adult life to the point where I think I've become blind to certain things. Like LA is such like a kind of prissy food culture by comparison. But I feel like the choices you were making, hamburger helper, Mm -hmm. uh, like what are some of the other like foods that- There's like like the the government cheese, which is like a big block of like cheap Velveeta essentially. It's like that American cheese, you know? That's pretty normal. I'm trying to think. I, when I, when my daughter was born, I was on WIC. And so I was able to get like gallon of milk, and like frozen, like base, the most basic, like frozen veggies, can of beans, pasta, like those kinds of things. You get like a can Dollar of General, at, at like Dollar General. And I don't know. There's potted just these little details. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. potted meat. I mean, just like, you know, but it's not appetizing. And then the there's like a scene later in the book where Dee Dee is at like, what what restaurant is it? Where she's like really eating a ton. The golden and it's like corral. the soft <laughs> golden, the golden corral, corral yeah. like this the soft serve ice cream. I'm somebody who is kind of a wuss. <laughs> Maybe increasingly so. But like I'm increasingly grossed out by like hotels, restaurants. I don't think they're clean. Mm. I don't think a lot of times the people who work there give a shit because they're getting paid so poorly. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, like, no, thanks. I'll just eat at home. Mm-hmm. This is a, these people resent you for even being there. They're, mm-hmm. They want to go home too. And, you know, I know that's not the whole story, <laughs> but I just found that these descriptions were spot on. And for me, they were like some of the more unsettling parts of the book. I guess maybe I'm grossed out by food more than the average person. <laughs> But I also find myself laughing because it's like so gross. You're just like, ugh, like the, you know, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. It just, uh, but can you just talk about those kinds of choices as they pertain to writing about people as as we've uh, touched upon earlier who are not well off mm-hmm. and who kind of live in food deserts or live in places where there are not, you know, high-end grocery stores available. And even if they were available, you know, a person like Didi couldn't afford to shop there regularly and so on and so forth Mm -hmm. but just your desire and interest in these kinds of characters living in these kinds of places well I think part of it is that like I've had those experiences like at different times in my life you know like like my mom buying like buying those Walmart eggs that they're just like anemic like, the shells are really weak, the yolks are really, like, pale, like, those kinds of, like, that kind of food, or, like, like I said, like, I was on, like, Women, Infants, Children, which is, like, it's, like, social, like, welfare when you don't have, like, a lot of money that they give you, like, a set, like, check per week, and then you can go to a grocery store and get, like, the WIC approved, like, foods, like, that kind of thing, so it's, like, you learn how to, like, make your budget stretch, so it's just, like, from like living it in a way like I have like memories of yeah like going to like the dollar store and like finding food that way like getting like like Vienna sausages um and even like the generic spam spam is actually actual spam is like really expensive to me (laughs) but you know like you would find like you just figure out like how to make your budget stretch and like make stuff work 
for you that way. You know what I mean? So it's just, like, based on those experiences. Like, I also, I mean, like, as a teenager, like, I had an eating disorder, so I've always been fascinated by, like, these the sensory details of food, too, right? Like, you describe it, right? Like, the eating it as, like, as, like, gross in a way, and there is this, not that I think food is gross, but I, but I, for me, food is just that big sensory thing. Like I've had moments in my life where I'm like literally binge eating and I know what those things feel like, like those, those experiences. And so I just think like, I wanted to like share, you know, kind of share that a little bit in a way. Yeah. I don't know. But yeah, just, I think that's part of it is like the, the food thing is like, you really learn, you have to learn how to make like a budget stretch. There was a period of time where when I was working at Starbucks, my partner and I were, like, literally living, like, 80% off of expired Starbucks sandwiches, <laughs> you know, because that's because that's what I could get from work, you know what I mean? Like, they were going out of date, and, you like, they would, you know, give them to you, and I've always kind of done that. Like, when I worked at a grocery store, it was, like, what can we take home that's expiring? Maybe that the manager's not going to notice, but, you know, like, you're you know, assistant manager thinks it's okay, you know, for you to take home or like what have you, you just figure out what you can do, like when you have to survive, you know what I mean? Like things are more, obviously things are more stable now, but it's like you just kind of learn, like you learn to use your resources in that way Um, or finding like food pantries, like you have limited options at food pantries. And so you go, you figure out what they have and you figure out how you can make like those, you know, those kinds of like meals work. Right. So, Mm -hmm. yeah. So just like, yeah, like kind of living it in a way. And it can be hard. It's hard. I think it's hard. What I've seen is that it's, it can be really difficult for people with like, um, like multiple children, like in, in communities and stuff, because then you really have to think about like, how are you going to feed like five people in one night? Cause that's like one week of, that's one week of food for one person is one family for one day. Right. Or not like what whole week, but just like one meal. Right. You know what I mean? So you, you have to think about, like, how you make that stuff stretch. So things like Hamburger Helper or, like, the off-brand versions of it, like a pasta kit, like a tuna pasta kit. Like, those things are all really crucial for keeping people fed, you know? But they're not always, like, yeah. the most nutritious, and that's the hard, like that's the hardest part is, like, trying to balance that, like, nutrition, especially for, like, like little growing kids and stuff, you know? Yeah, mm-hmm. for sure. And... Uh, on a different note, mm-hmm. this is a novel that is interested in the spiritual life and in particular the spiritual life of this region in rural Missouri in the Ozarks. The Pentecostal church plays a big role in this novel. Dee Dee was raised uh, in a family, mostly by her mother. Her father passed away from cancer, right? Mm-hmm. It's cancer. Mm-hmm. And was raised in one of these very religious households that and in a particular church that I think in many ways shaped her worldview and her expectations for herself Mm -hmm. in the world like it really kind of put a frame on existence for her Mm -hmm. is that accurate yeah I think it is accurate especially when it comes to like her relationship with Sloan who's her like teenage crush slash like teenage best friend. Yeah. And also Sloan is someone to whom she is often compared disfavorably. Sloan mm-hmm. is super pretty and I think 
Dee Dee's mother has a particular affection for Sloane mm-hmm. that might in some ways be hurtful to Dee Dee to have her mom sort of uh, like valorizing and praising Sloane in front of her all the times in ways that she often does not praise Dee Dee herself. Mm-hmm. So that's a very complicated relationship at the heart of this novel, this relationship between Dee Dee and Sloane, also the relationship between Dee Dee and Mama, her mother. Mm-hmm. That's not an easy relationship either. And this sort of triangle of female relationships in the book are definitely shot through with these spiritual concerns and with the church itself. I mean, the Pentecostal church is kind of a binding thread between all three of them. I think we talked the last time you were on this show about your spiritual upbringing in, and especially your time in Colorado Springs, which is a very right-wing Christian town. Mm-hmm. It's like where focus on family is. And I'm curious to know about your experiences with the Pentecostal church, mm-hmm. which is what? Pentecostals like speaking in tongues. Yeah. That's what, that's what it is. The people are so like possessed by the spirit of the Lord that they start to like babble and speak in tongues nonsense. Mm-hmm. Did you have experience with that growing up or is this another thing that you set out to research? It was actually just another thing that I set out to research. Like I did have a lot of exposure to Christianity growing up. Um, it's like, especially with Colorado Springs and, and all of that. And, but when I, when I was 13 and I was like, I don't like believe in God anymore. Like my parents were upset. Like my dad was really upset, but nobody forced really anything on me after that like in terms of like punishing me for not wanting to like go to church or anything like that so I I was really lucky in that respect but I I don't know I've always been fascinated by different sects of Christianity and why they believe what they believe like I it's fundamentally like like entertaining and interesting to me for example that like some sects of Christianity like Depend, like Pentecostals will view something like Catholicism as like basically Satanism, like it's just so Wait, wrong. We'll, we'll view we'll view what as Satanism? Catholicism, like Catholics, as oh. like you know, like that's just like what they practice is so wrong. Or there's disagreements between like the like having one God or like a triune God. Like there's different. There's like these a lot of differences in opinion. And these you know it the the history of it is interesting. That's like I think one of the main reasons why the United States even exists is because they wanted to like break away from I think the Anglican church and like practice things their own way you know what I mean like it really does drive people um and I'm curious about that like I'm not a Christian but I fundamentally believe that like ritual is a very like natural emergent behavior that all humans have and that's why that's why religion exists in all these different ways and so I just really wanted to I really wanted to examine it like I have my own history with organ like different organized religions you know, like we were talking, like study Buddhism on and off for like a long time and stuff like that too. And I think in my own dislike for elements of Christianity, I'm driven to understand it more because if I'm gonna not associate with something, I kind of want to know, like, you know, why, like, know the details. Like, reading the Bible is really fascinating to me, examining like these different verses or like, interesting um if i find something to be like hypocritical i want to understand like how 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 can i talk about this or defend this argument or you know what have you so that's kind of where like it started um 
and then and, I, and, and then I did I did I research. See? Yes. <laughs> okay, and a lot of it is crazy. I have to say, <laughs> like not just Pentecostal. I mean, and this is just me. I you know the, my view on this stuff, like people speaking in tongues and falling to the ground, and uh, or like the Mormon tablets being found in a hillside or mm-hmm. even, even like Jesus, like resurrecting this idea that he like came back from the dead and floated up into the sky. I find this goofy. Mm-hmm. Am I being a dick? <laughs> like, I, I can't help when I'm faced with this stuff. Even like, really? Like people believe this? Like, it just seems crazy to me. It seems crazy. And yet maybe I'm like judgmental and shut off or something. Mm-hmm. I don't know. But it seems like, like I'm happy to have discussions about different perspectives and points of view and rituals and all that kind of stuff. But at a certain point for me, it just gets goofy and maybe like not helpful in the grand scheme of things because people become really attached to these ideologies to the point where they're willing to what fight and kill and die for them or, mm-hmm. you know, think that, think that, Catholics are going to burn in hell. I mean, it's just, it's crazy. <laughs> no, yeah. I mean, I don't know. Yeah, I think like, it's so complicated because I know there are people who, they live their lives in accordance with what they would say are like the values like of Jesus, right? And these are like the, actually the good things, right? Like, I think in the South, when I, I mean, in the South, I had a lot of Christian friends and they're like, they're doing, I guess, what are like the, like the works is what they call it. And they won't necessarily like proselytize you, but what they want to do is like live their lives as an example of a good person. And by doing that, you'll see how good that like, you know, like that religion is like living your life in accordance with these values. And then you'll want to be a part of it, you know? So it kind of like, some of it is like makes sense because like they are very kind, they're very generous. There there are a lot of Christians who are not like homophobic or xenophobic or any of those things. Like they have that. And then I think there's this element of Christianity which probably is like the type that somehow, you know, like the Republican Party and like the and like Christian conservatives kind of like began to link up like in the eighties and it became really political. And I think those are a lot of people who are, like, really afraid, feel like they're losing power. I think there's an element of evangelical Christianity that kind of posits, like, um, any attack on the religion as, like, this is a normal persecution that Christians will face just like Jesus was persecuted. Like, the persecution complex is kind of built in because, like, because, yeah, Jesus was, like, literally killed for for this religion and, like, what he believed in. And so so that, that kind of, like, mixes in with it in terms of, like, the way that, you know, politics and stuff uh, like that are going. So it's, like, those things, like, I can objectively look at them and observe them and say, like, okay, I can see why people, yeah like, behave, like, you know, behave this way, even if I don't, like, agree with it all the time. Because, like, every, you know, people are afraid and they want power and they also want to lessen their suffering. And people will do a lot of things to try to lessen their suffering that don't involve examining themselves because that's, like, the most uncomfortable part. <laughs> you know, like, there's a lot of that that plays into it, too. But, yeah, I don't know. I know it's hard. I, like, I personally... Like, don't, like, yeah, I, I feel like there's also a lot of Christian thinking that exists, like, in the American mind that people may not even realize that they have. 
like puritanism, you know, or the way that we like shame people for, for things that, that they, they don't need to be shamed for or something. Like that. That's kind of like a Christian thing. That's like this idea of like, you know, sinning and stuff like that. So yeah, I know. I don't know. That's where I'm at on it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I think I'm fine with people doing whatever they want to do as long as they don't try to like legislate their morality and impose it upon others. Yeah. And they don't hurt, they don't hurt people. You know, it's not actively hurtful. Yeah. No, a hundred percent. But I feel like, I feel like people are in certain quarters of the Christian community actively trying to legislate their morality on the rest of us. Yeah. I know. And that's, that becomes... sorry, I don't mean to interrupt, but I was like, that's the thing that is so frustrating about it is that like, they shouldn't be, they shouldn't be doing that. Like there's literally separation of like church and state, you know? Well, but they don't want that. Yeah. There, there are people, these are the people I'm talking about who believe that there should be no separation. They want like a theocracy and that is bad news. Yeah. Uh, I want to say, I, you know, forgive me for not having a better memory, but did we discuss last time that you spent four years as a Muslim? Like you converted to Islam mm -hmm. at a certain point? Mm -hmm. So, I mean, this is like, this is unique. I think there are a lot of people who are like spiritually curious, but like your spiritual curiosity seems to be maybe a little bit more genuine and intense than the average person. Like you've really explored, you study Buddhism, you were raised Christian. How did you convert to Islam? I, well, I went to the mosque and then I said my Shahada and then, I be, and then, you know, and then I started going and stuff. But like, I initially was curious actually, because like, I think what happened was I was reading about how they had captured Osama bin Laden and like released his body in the sea, like in accordance with like, they were saying like Muslim burial practices. And I was like, that doesn't, I was like, that doesn't seem right to me. I don't know. I've never, you know, I was like, I just wanted to research. And so when I started researching Islam a lot more, I was like, this religious, this religion seems like interesting to me. Like I was curious about it. It seemed really like, I, I was reading about like halal butchering practices and I was like, oh, this seems like it works on a level of like harm reduction in a way. I don't know. I was like kind of, the more that I read about it, the more I was like, this doesn't, this is not what people told me it was. You know, like growing up as a child, like post 9-11, like people tell you like it's so violent or they're the enemy or it's like, you know, it's all about jihad and stuff. And it wasn't really. There was a lot of beauty in it and a lot of um, reverence. And so I did. I went I went to the mosque and then I converted and I would pray five times a day, went to the mosque every Friday. Um, eventually, so I converted into a Sunni mosque and then... Eventually, my studies led me to Shia Islam, which I found a lot of, like, reverence for. It felt a little bit more forgiving and spiritual. And even though through, like, like through my years of practice, I eventually hit this point where I was like, I don't think I'm, like, monotheistic, so I can't practice this religion. Like, I'm, like, that's literally heretical, you know? Like, after a while, just, like, kind of learning more about myself and my beliefs and, like, what I was learning... I still have, like, a lot of reverence for the religion. Like, there was one time, I can't remember the details now because it's been so long, but in one part of um, in Shia Islam, you do, like, a 100-cycle prayer, which is, you know, the full, like, standing and then going down and then standing up again and, like, saying the particular prayer. Um, you do it in a group. You do it a 100 times. And, like, that was, like, that was, like, a religious experience for me, you know? Like, you know sometimes when you... I don't know if you've experienced this, but if you meditate and you kind of like completely lose like 
all sense of where you are in space. Like you're like, I don't have a body anymore. I'm just like this thing, right? Like witnessing or, you know, thinking about consciousness in this like disparate suspended way. It was kind of my, one of my first experiences doing that when I was doing this like 100 cycle prayer, which was incredible. Like, you know, really like, I don't know. It was amazing. But yeah, I eventually, I eventually just left because I, there were, there were some things with the community that were really hard because not everyone's progressive, like as progressive, like as I think I would need for a religious community. And like, yeah, I my, my kind of, my belief system was changing a little bit in terms of like how I thought about monotheism and like my wider view of the world. So I was like, maybe it's just not for me. Like you can't be a practicing Muslim if you don't believe in like one God, you know, like that's the whole basis you know, more so even than Christianity is like, there's literally only one God. Like there's no, there's no Jesus. Like Jesus is a prophet in Islam, but like you, you don't worship him. Like you only worship Allah, you know? So I was like, okay, maybe I'm just going to like keep reading and searching for, for whatever works. And when you were researching for Deliver Me and you went to a Pentecostal church, what, in Missouri? Mm-hmm. In Arkansas. In Arkansas. Mm-hmm. What, what was that experience like? It was, so I got, a, like, I got a little scared because it was like this, it was like a very, like a very small, like maybe 10 family church that I found. And it wasn't just Pentecostal, specifically uh, oneness doctrine. So they are just, you know, a bit more intense than I would say than like your average Pentecostal <laughs> believer. You who know? are very, who, who, who to me seem very intense. So yeah. to be more intense than that is it very intense. Yeah, yeah. But it was also familiar because I had already like been, you know, consistently in a world where um, people are, like the religion is like their life. It is like your whole like life in some ways. And so that part felt almost familiar. Like when I showed up, I was wearing like, jeans and like my face pierced and I'm wearing all black and like this is a church where like the women wear skirts and they don't wear any makeup and it's very like traditional but everyone was so kind to you when you show up because like you're you could be like a newcomer they want to see how they can you know like bring you in and bring you like on the right path and stuff so everyone is like really kind but like yeah I just wanted to go to experience it and, like hear kind of what what they had to say and what it was like so it was like both familiar and kind of scary, you know, like being outsider, but also kind of being like, this feels familiar to me, like having like, you know, gone to a mosque and gone through this conversion process and spent my my days, you know, like with very religious people. But because you're like in this small town in Arkansas, you're just kind of like, <laughs> you know, like I'm a stranger well, and I'm weird. <laughs> like hopefully they don't well, find but, out that I'm like, you know, that I like women or whatever. Like it's very like, you know, <laughs> like that gets a little scary. <laughs> well, it's also, a, I think part of what unsettles me about it is that I feel like this kindness that you feel emanating from these people as they welcome you into the church is transactional, mm-hmm. which is to say it's not fully authentic. It's contingent upon this notion of them converting you to mm-hmm. their ideology. It's not like we love you no matter what. Like, hey, it's nice to meet you. We're just being kind to be kind. They're being kind with an ulterior motive, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, and that's one thing that really made it hard to live like in Arkansas for a long time is that for those, there's there so many like believers, right? Like it's just there that um, they, they are kind, but you do start to feel this sense of like, for me, 
like I can't get to like a deeper connection with a person because like I'm not going to go to like a Bible study. Like I'm not going to like join the soccer team that your church has. You know what I mean? Because like I know you want me to come more into the community, like that kind of thing. And so it becomes like it becomes harder to feel like you have like a deeper for me it became harder to feel like I had a deeper genuine connection with like like those kinds of people I had very I have very deep genuine friends that do live out there but they're definitely like not Christian you know like they're more like they're more like me like in that respect so we would we can develop those deeper friendships but because that was so common and you're like living in the suburbs and I didn't have a car so I was like in my neighborhood all the time like those are the people in my neighborhood so I was like yeah I'm just like I'm not I'm lonely. You know what I mean? Like, I need, like, friends and community, and this, these aren't, like, that's not my community. You know what I mean? So, because it does, it feels, it does tend to start feeling transactional. So, you now live in Glasgow, Scotland. Mm-hmm. How did that happen? I've been seeing you tweet about this for a while, and I've been wondering, like, what is going on? You just moved to Glasgow? Mm-hmm. Yeah, my um, my mom's from England, and so I have a British passport. And during COVID, which was very hard for everybody, I just hit this point where I was like, I'm tired of thinking like, oh, when? Well, maybe I'll do this. You know, maybe, you know, maybe we'll try, you know, to like leave the country or something like that. Um, I, I just hit this point where I was like, life is too short. I just need to stop being afraid and try to get over here, even if it's hard. You know, my daughter was hitting, coming up on school age. She was like four going on five. And even that, like the idea of like sending her to school, like it was so hard for me to think about, you know, like the people having to do like the like shooter drills and stuff. Like I was just like, I just feel, it was so hard for me to imagine like having, just her having to experience that like psychologically. So I was like, I just have to figure this out. I have to get over there, you know? Just, like, get a plane ticket, get an Airbnb, and then, like, you know, find my job, right? Like, work at a grocery store, whatever it was, like, I would have to do, you know, just to get her over there, so. And you did it. I did it! And it's been almost two years, which is crazy. The time has flown by really quickly. And it's been great, and there's, like, an amazing writer community in Glasgow, um, lots of art. Um, yeah, it's been really wonderful. Lots of rain but I don't mind rain. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and it's, uh, it's been something that you net positive and you would envision yourself staying there for a while. I think so. I like my, so my dad was in the army and we moved around all the time. So I never really had a place that feels like home, even though I have like different hometowns that I've stayed in for long periods of time. But like when I walk around Glasgow, I just have this feeling. I'm like, this feels like home. Like that's the thought that runs through my head. Is like this feels like home. I'm not, I don't think I've ever really had that experience. So it feels it feels good. Like it feels right. I have great friends. Everyone is like so kind, in a way that's not transactional. <laughs> Speaking of, you know, good. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, it feels like it feels pretty good. So we'll see. You know. Yeah. I think I think though. Like I don't. I can't envision myself leaving Scotland. Like maybe when I'm old, I'll like retire. Like out in the country or something maybe but like I love the city and it's a manageable city it's not like too big there's still lots of people but it's not like 
it's not like super overwhelming I guess like it is you know like with New York City or something so it's nice so last question mm -hmm. are you working on I guess I think you alluded to this earlier but are you working on another book I am um, I'm working on two different books but I'm superstitious and I don't want to talk about what they are because <laughs> if I do and then they don't get published, one, everyone will be like, oh, she didn't finish that project. And two, maybe like I'll dissipate the excitement for it before I've been able to get it out in the world. So. So novels, fiction, nonfiction? It'll be novels. Definitely. I think that's where I live now is just fiction. <laughs> yeah. You're working on two different novel projects. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No butcher paper on the wall yet. No, not yet. Yeah, one is like, I don't know why, but it's it's the seat of your pants type of thing, even though I'm like, why am I doing it this way? Because I, I was like, I found my method, you know? But the other one I think will be more, maybe will be more like that. Like, I've already outlined it, so now I'm like, maybe I do need to get the butcher paper and, like, the strings. Do the conspiracy Might theory be time. Thing. Yeah. All right. Yeah. <laughs> well, listen, great to catch up with you. Uh, congratulations on Deliver Me. It's an excellent novel. Thank you so much. Congrats on your life in Glasgow, which sounds lovely. Mm -hmm. And I wish you all the best on the next two books. I appreciate that. Thank you for having me on. Okay, folks, there we go. That was Elle Nash. Her new novel is called Deliver Me, available from the unnamed press. You can find Elle online at lnash.net. Follow her on Twitter or on Instagram. Again, the novel is called Deliver Me. It is memorable. Go get your copy right away. Don't forget to subscribe to this show wherever you listen. You can also subscribe on YouTube. Follow the show on social media, TikTok, Instagram, Twitter, and Blue Sky. If you want to get my email newsletter, you can subscribe over at Substack. If you would like to join the Other People Patreon community, you can do that at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. If you have a couple of minutes and you want to help me out a little bit, you can give the show a rating wherever you listen. You might also be able to write a review. Doing that sort of thing helps the show find new listeners. It helps the show in the rankings and the algorithm. So write a review. Give it a rating if you have a couple of minutes. If you would like to get an Other People t-shirt, you can do that at the show's official website, otherppl.com. And finally, a quick plug for my latest novel. It is called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. It is out there now in trade paperback, ebook, and audiobook editions. I narrate the audiobook. So if you would like to read my novel, you can do that. It's called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. All right, so coming up on Friday, there will be a flashback episode where I dig into the archives and share an outtake from an episode from the past. And then on Sunday, I will be in conversation with Eliza Clark, author of this month's book club pick, Penance, available from Harper Books. So Eliza Clark on Sunday. Stay tuned.